This is a Stand Up New York Labs production, providing you podcasts since 2013. Success seems unlimited. From winning in this world, and that's the only world I'm living in. From Lawrence to downtown, then to the Upper West, I got the subway systems tatted on my chest. The city holds the keys to your greatest desire, and it can seem so endless on top of the empire. Underdogs rise and take the city by force. You really wanna win? Always bet on a dark horse. Come on and bite the big apple. Stand up, New Just York. Give it a try. This is the city they that never sleeps. If the city never sleeps, now, then why should? Thanks everyone for coming. Thank you, Adam, for venturing all the way up to the Upper West Side. Oh, you're welcome. And Strat Small. Thank you. Well, you're here like every day. Yeah, but I have to come from the Upper East Side. <laughs> but when was, that, you, when was the last time you were on the West Side? Probably don't venture up here often. Days ago. Really? Yeah. Wait, where do you live? I live in the village. I live. Oh yeah, right, I live in the like right in the village. Okay. Yeah, right by Astor Place. But you guys know each other. Yes. You guys yeah. Met before. We met through uh, Jeff Frost. Jeff Frost. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he brings people together. Okay, he is. He's like a, a binding force in the universe. Yes. You wouldn't think it, but you yeah. just met him from the downtown scene. Jeff and I met years ago. He had done a movie called Patriot Act, and uh, I think I met him through Saget. And uh, I went to see. He asked me to come see Patriot Act at a first screening of it, like they had at the comedy festival years ago, and it was mm-hmm. it was really good. Um, and then we showed it at my house. We had a movie night at my house, and we showed Patriot Act there. And he and I became really good friends. This is, I don't know how long ago. We did a USO tour together. Okay. Nice. It was like me, Colin Kane, Sarah Tiana, Jeff, Stewie Stone as the uh, as the MC, and Robert Klein. Wow. So it was like five funny people and me, who can only play the most miserable songs we have. <laughs> That's the only ones I can still play on piano, because I don't remember how the rest of them go. But, uh, how often so did you do know. movie night? What'd you say? How often do you do movie night? Just so we used that? to do it every week. Oh, there hasn't anymore. been as much lately. You was know? that tour in the Middle East? No, this one was. Uh, oh, yeah, it was in the, the states. The, the hospitals. No, it went to Germany. Oh, okay. Like Ramstein and right. the, the hospitals around there. It was for mm-hmm. a lot of people that were, uh, you know, the, after when they get injured, that's where they fly everyone to. So right. it was for a lot of sort of disabled uh, veterans and people mm-hmm. who are really going through some rehab. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was fun. It was like. A weird camp for a few days. I did a movie with the Broken Lizard guys, and it was a lot like that. Just oh. spending two months or three months with those guys, mm-hmm. spending a week with the uh, the guys over in Germany. It was just like going to camp with funny, you know. Yeah, what is it? Was there a difference between hanging out with comics on that tour and musicians? Less drugs. <laughs> less drugs with the musicians. Yeah. No, less drugs <laughs> with the comics. You know, y'all always holding. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, I don't. I don't know a comic who's not stunned. Oh, yeah, we stay stoned. You're right. <laughs> Pretty much. It's like a constant thing. Y'all got hotter groupies, though, too. Let's keep that real. That's also true. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a good life. Yeah. <laughs> and where you grew up where? Uh, well, all over. Born on the East Coast, then Texas, uh, and then Northern California, like San Francisco, Berkeley, Oakland. I grew up in Oakland and Berkeley. How much time you spent in Texas? Uh, about five years when I was young. Was that like, that like a weird transition from the East to for a Jewish kid? Well, it was weird because I'd been born in Baltimore, and then we moved to Boston when I was about three uh, for my dad to go for his internships because he was in medical school. And that's going from one of the worst accents in the world to another, let's say, a fairly strong accent right. from Baltimore to Boston. Yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I was speaking pretty early, so I was desperate not to sound like I was from Baltimore. So <laughs> right. I, I, I worked myself into a kind of Kennedy Fuhrer very okay. quickly. And then we moved right down to Texas. My dad had get in the Army during Vietnam, and mm-hmm. he was stationed in El Paso. And it was an even faster shift down there just to avoid getting the shit kicked out of me. Are you an only child? No, no, my little sister. But she was really young. Right. So then we were in Texas for about four or five years. Did they used um, to be jazzed down there? What'd you say? Did you get chased around down there when you first moved in? It was just a little weird at first because I sounded pretty weird. Right. You know, but... uh I think I liked it a lot. You know, it's the first place I remember. You know, when you're a kid, there's those years where you just you don't do things unless you're with your parents. Yeah. And then at a certain age, you go wander off and do shit. And right. I got to Texas for first grade, and it was that time, like the first time I remember being off on my own. It's you know El Paso's just desert. You know, it's mm-hmm. you know a lot of spiders and snakes and shit like that. It's the first time I remember being on my own. Right. And uh, so I really loved it. I loved El Paso. I didn't like Houston so much when we got there. Okay, what later. was wrong? What was Houston? What was the difference? That's the worst the city? of Texas. It's just, 
big belt, big hat, big car, big <laughs> steak, big, 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 and it's all in the city. And how old yeah. were you when you moved to Berkeley? Ten. Ten years old. Like that, yeah. I think. Okay. That's when you started playing music? No, that's when I moved to, we moved to Oakland when I was ten. Um, I started playing music, it started kind of late. I mean, I was in some bands when I was about 12 or 13, but they're just, you know, they're just cover bands. I didn't write my first song, I think, until freshman fall term of college. You played an instrument when you were 12? Shitty. Um, I played bass in my first band, which is a mystery to me today because I have no idea how to play <laughs> bass. And I can't believe I ever did, but I know I did. I played bass and I sang. Uh, but we're just doing, like, you know, our parents would buy each of us. They offered to buy, like, a songbook for each of us. So we just picked the biggest ones. We got the Beatles, the Stones, and Zeppelin because mm-hmm. they're... A lot of st- you got a lot of songs. Yeah, you got more bang for your buck on those. So that's all we did, really. You and know? you covered all those songs. We would play them. You know, we played at friends' bar mitzvahs and stuff. And this was all in the Bay Area. That's in the Bay Area. What yeah. do your parents think? What when did they per- think of when that? You first started playing music. Not See, no son of mine. Of shits playing. <laughs> they they're both doctors. To, they yeah. were in it. You know, they're like both doctors, sort of Jewish intellectual types. They they, they thought that was cool. Okay. Yeah. But we were probably fucking adorable in a really shitty way that you don't want to be. <laughs> 13 years old playing at people's bar mitzvahs, at some break in the middle. How, how connect, growing up, how connected were you to Judaism? Uh, we're all, most of us are probably super Jewish in here. Yeah, I'm a black yeah. belt Jew. They, they have mezuzahs I'm really on the door here. I was uh, brought up, you know, in a fairly <laughs> intense reform to conservative Judaism, but. Uh, I kind of got apostate. I went over there when I was, I went to Israel when I was uh, 16, and then I went back again when I was 18. You want a birthright. What'd you say? That's like a, that's a Shirah joke. Yeah, the birthright. You know what birthright is. That's like, like how you said, I went over there, like you talking about the war and shit. <laughs> no, you don't know, you know what a birthright is? Yeah, when you got to go back to Israel. Uh, no, it's an organization, they, they send kids that send, have never like, been right. to Israel. Oh, really? Like for free. Yeah. Oh, I don't think yeah. this was that, I don't know. No, no, no. But, uh, you know, we all went over there, I worked on a kibbutz for a little while when I was 16. Mostly just got high, yeah. drank a lot, because there's no law there for that. I mean, right. it seemed, for a kid, there's only one law that matters. That's you can't drink, you can't smoke, you can't go out. Right. So there's no law. Mm-hmm. Climb out the window and go get high. Did you realize um, how, so how much uh, hotter the Jews were there than here? I don't remember. <laughs> well, we're over there with all these kids from here, and, you know. It's all beachfront over there, though, yeah, baby. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, I got heat stroke. Did you? <laughs> oh yeah, man. Like in Haifa, I got. I remember getting heat stroke. We, that night we went to uh, see a screening of Rocky Horror Picture Show at a midnight showing in Haifa. And so there's like four different languages going on the screen, you know, the, the, the subtitles. And I started to hallucinate, and it was very, very, very unpleasant. There's the movie. There's the people on stage faking it, dancing, singing. There's four languages. I started to hallucinate with those. Not a good night, actually. They were live performing the movie? Yeah, yeah. if you go to see oh, Rock, right, at least right, they used to, the, they'd all yeah, get up yeah. on stage and act it out, mm-hmm. I guess. I, you know. I remember doing it in Berkeley and not hallucinating, and it was more fun. <laughs> uh, the other types of hallucination are far, far superior as an enjoyment spectacle mm-hmm. than sunstroke, which is fairly low on the fun scale. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds like it. Yeah. Sure, You've you been to Israel? Uh, never been to Israel. Want to go, though. Do you want to go, you know, Haifa, <laughs> Tel Aviv? It was a cool place. Especially the first time I went, uh, they still had Sinai. So we went all through Sinai. Mm-hmm. Um, second time I went, we stole a Jeep and got drunk and tried to drive south from uh, a lot mm-hmm. and went st- ran straight into a border, which was not, not good. What? The wrong border. Well, there was a border there now. There hadn't been two years before mm-hmm. Sinai had been a part of Israel. While I was gone, they, they gave it back to Egypt. And then we, we just got drunk and took some car and... Got in a lot of trouble. And that wasn't as cool. How old were you then? 17. Okay, you're supposed to do stuff 18. like that. Yeah. Now, did you get inf- influenced by music when you heard it over there? That... Not really. No? I mean, it's just they were playing our music over there then. Right. You don't I mean, hear a lot of... There were Israeli bands later that I checked out. Like, what's that band called? It was really good. No, there was like a guitar pop band, like a teenage fan clubish band. Um, you don't hear of a lot of, well, the name of it. Israeli bands these days. You're 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 big into uh, just finding new artists. Do you, have you seen anyone from Israel that you like recently? No, I mean the guy who does all the the filming for us is Israeli, our okay. videographer. Okay, I met him like I don't know how long ago. He was like a, a fan kid coming to shows like 20 years ago. Mm. Now he's all grown up. Mm-hmm. 
Where do you discover, because you have a, a music festival, yeah. right? Underwater Sunshine. sunshine yeah. So how do you discover new What's artists? the name of it? Underwater Sunshine. Okay, good. I like it. <laughs> I'm just looking You definitely around. smoke pot in your life. <laughs> there was a time. You know, I wish I still could. It's the only thing I miss from the drugs is the pot. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I just like look for it all the time. I, I, I'm always just wandering through things trying to find music mm -hmm. and underwater sunshine is a music festival that well it was the name of a record we made where we it was a cover album but we mostly covered the smart way to do a cover album is to cover all these famous songs and then everybody just wants it we did the most obscure cover album ever made there's okay. like <laughs> indie bands bands of our friends just <laughs> nothing on there anyone knew i really loved the record but uh and it was called underwater sunshine and then uh uh, my friend and I started a podcast, and we decided to use that name. Okay. And when we restarted the festival to do it after the Outlaw Roadshow, uh, everyone in the festival came to me and said, hey, we like the name Underwater Sunshine. Can we just call it that, too? Mm -hmm. And it seemed like, well, we've got a branding thing. Why not? So how many – you've done this for a few years, the festival? This is our second festival. And know? where is it? It's in down at Bowery Electric right now. It's okay, small nice. in the village. Yeah. Um, but we did Outlaw Roadshow for about seven or eight years, and here, Austin – Nashville, Toronto. Mm -hmm. We were most of us worked on that before this, so we did that all over. How many bands in the festival? Well, last time we, you know, what we do is we have these night the night night shows on Friday and Saturday at the club, but then we film acoustic sets by all the bands all day long f for four days: Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Damn. So we had eighteen bands play mm -hmm. the festival, and we had uh, we filmed thirty eight. Wow. Acoustic sets. Do you handpick the bands? Well, all of us do together. I picked a bunch of them. Okay. There's about seven of us who work on it, and we all picked them. And it's next month, right? Yeah, it's April, April 5th and 6th. Okay. All, all at the Bowery Electric. Yeah, except the acoustic stuff. Okay. Yeah. Now, what's the music scene? What do you see like in New York City? Do you see like uh, not enough places to play anymore? I see like Continental closed down, and CBGB's been closed for a while, but it's... Yeah, there's still a lot of clubs. There generally are. I mean, it, it's harder in a city like... Uh, San Francisco, where where you know this has been a big city and a really successful city for a long very, time. very, very long time. So there's always areas that are up, that are down. You can find a place to put a club. It's harder in a place like San Francisco where something comes along like the dot-com that blows it up through the roof, and right. all of a sudden all those warehouses, garages, everything becomes condos. Right. And now those are the places where, forget playing, bands rehearsed mm -hmm. in. If you can't rehearse, you can't play, you know I mean? That kind of happened after we left out there, right? You know that, but it, here there still seems to be. I mean, I remember a lot of clubs that aren't here anymore too. But I think that just happens. Tramps is gone. Brownies, those Tramps were all cool when I was younger. Yeah. Um, but there still seems to be a lot. And there's always new ones opening. There's this. I went to see this band Sunflower Bean at uh, Warsaw a few months ago. I'd never been there before. That place was pretty mm -hmm. cool. Nice. You know, it remind. It's a kind of like Bowery Ballroom or. It's like a bit, and there's that place, Brooklyn Steel. I saw a dashboard confessional there. Mm -hmm. they were, there seems to be a lot. Those are both in Brooklyn, which is, right. that's one thing. That's a new place for, you know, in the last, like, 10 or 15 years for a lot of clubs. And yeah. still, Alphabet City has a ton of stuff, and you know, there's things. Which, which, um, which are the best cities, uh, which cities have the best venues for music? Oh, I don't know. experience changes to play in? Well, I, my favorite venue is probably the Greek Theater in Berkeley. That's well, the best place I've ever seen a show. It's the best place I've ever played a show. What do you like so much about it? It's just great. It's an open-air amphitheater, but it's yeah. not like the other one. It's actually built like a Roman amphitheater, so the it's stone steps going up. It's really beautiful. Uh, the sound is impeccable. Really? Um, I mean, I saw it's my, it was my favorite place to see shows when I was a kid. Uh, and it's my favorite place to play now. We don't get to play there very often, though. It's, it's a little smaller than the other places out there because it's probably 9,000, and there are places that are 15 to 20, so... Mm -hmm. We don't get to play there very often. Damn. 9,000? That still what's sounds the, like a lot to me. What's the worst? What, I don't even have to say it, but what's the worst venue? <laughs> or describe um, the, a bad venue. Well, it just depends on what's going on there that day. You know, it could be... I mean, we played a place in Knoxville, Tennessee once when we were opening for Cracker, and and there's no... Uh, the backstage was at the back of the hall, not, not the back where the stage is, but the other end of it. Mm -hmm. And the only way to get up on the stage was... They kind of kept a walkway around the fringes of the crowd, so you had to walk all the way around, you know, three sides of the place, and then you'd walk up the stairs, and the stage was like across a triangle, like across a corner. And we were opening, it was in the first three or four months of our first album tour, and uh, 
the horns were all blown in the monitors, <laughs> like the treble part. So it's just like they're just going, <laughs> and there's there's low end, but no mid or high. It's, all the horns are blown, so it's just it was the gig. worst sound ever. I couldn't hear anything I was doing. We were terrible, and I was really frustrated. And uh, when we were done, it, it was just quiet. <laughs> what, I mean, the audience? I mean, it was just quiet. <laughs> Nobody did anything. Nobody clapped. It was just like, we, and, and there, you don't get to just go off the back. You have to kind of walk down off the I'm stage. Back around the crowd. Walk all the way around three sides of the crowd. <laughs> and then go into the room. That's what I remember is the worst show ever because, mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't, I don't remember ever not getting any applause except that one time where it was just kind of uncomfortable and quiet. I felt bad for them. Because they had to be really, if, if as uncomfortable as I was, I, I felt like they were probably pretty uncomfortable too. On the other hand, fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, really the fault of the club, though. That, you know. What size room is your favorite? Oh, big. I, I like playing big places. I like playing festivals. Yeah. Just because uh, we like to do a lot of intimate things. You know, we like to improvise whole sections, make up songs, inside songs. Uh, and it's cool to play that in a club. You get the response every time. Mm -hmm. But if you can do it in, with 60,000 people at a festival in Europe where they don't know you that well, if you can like – because when we first went over to Europe to play festivals, we were getting all this advice about don't do that stuff. Don't stretch the songs out. Uh, just play the way they're supposed to be because these people don't know you. But I lost focus and did it anyways. And right. Like if you can pull that off for the crowd that doesn't know you, you know, or just a big crowd. If you can get a crowd to go pin drop quiet for something, I feel re that's really cool. I read that you you play the songs that you want to play, and you play it how you want to play it, not based on what the audience wants to hear, right? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I you suppose, asshole. <laughs> yeah, I suppose there's a they're like certain, we didn't come for this. <laughs> Fuck off. Yeah, well, it's more than my crew gets that because I'm yeah. gone before they realize it. Like, <laughs> they're still thinking it's coming and, and, and we're not there anymore. <laughs> but I've had mostly the same crew for 25 years. A lot of them have been there so this the whole time. And so uh, they'll tell me later when, you know, like, fuck you. Like the next day, and like, by the way, uh, I caught a lot of shit for that. What do you mean you caught? Well, I'm on stage, I'm cleaning things up, and they're just like, people are furious. <laughs> I think with us, you either you kind of know what you're in for, so either you're there for that or. Either you love us because we're improvisational or you don't because we're fucking up the songs you mm -hmm. like the way that you want to hear them. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to be I, – I get I get why people like that too because, you know, it's – you associate it with a certain point in your life where you listened to something and loved it. And you want to recreate that moment when you go to see a band play. Mm -hmm. But the band, coincidentally, is not dead. Yeah. So they're still they're still yeah. living their life in the present, <laughs> mm -hmm. not necessarily 20 years ago. And they want to still create and do stuff and – yeah. You know, there's a certain it's a it's a tension though. I get it. You know, I, I just you know I don't want to completely give in to that because I you know I got stuff I want to do. So right. I mean, you you've been obviously super successful, but um, we've been successful. No, but what yeah. what have you what, super what, what do you Super's feel different? What do you feel like you failed at that most super. people? I mean, I feel like we out. failed at super. We're being super? <laughs> yeah, like I, I feel like we failed at super in some ways. I think there was a lot of things we did that were important to me and that seemed like really good things. And at a time when I didn't really know what I was doing, I made decisions based on what felt right to me. Because the biggest fear I had when we started out was doing things I didn't want to do and regretting them later. Right. I felt like I would never be able to put that back. And so I, I did a lot of stuff the way I wanted to do it. Not out of arrogance, it just seemed like the right thing to do. But, mm -hmm. you know, I could, with perspective later, I could see some of them were mistakes, you know. And they may have held us back from being super successful. Give me uh, an example. Well, we made our first album. It sold, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 million records, whatever. Yeah. Let uh, me borrow and, some money. Yeah. <laughs> it's all gone, man. Damn it. Gone. It's all gone. I spent it all on, well, first pot, then cupcakes. Okay. <laughs> uh, Priorities. Um. We you know, like people want us to do it yeah. again. You want us to work with T-Bone Burnett again and make right. the same record again, make August and everything after, after, or after August and everything after, whatever you want to call it. And we didn't want to. We weren't interested. We had other things we wanted to do. Uh, we caught a lot of shit from the record company for we got the guy that produced all the Pixies records because I wanted to work with Gil Norton. That That's a number one record, but the next record we chose to 
go find the guys who'd done Sparkle Horse records, you know, because mm-hmm. that was the stuff we were interested in, and we wanted to chase it towards musical things that satisfied us. And I, I have no regrets about anything on the records. That's one place I don't have any regrets. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I feel like we're 8-0 or 7-0, whatever it is, on the records. But, you know, there were ways to do it that probably would have made us bigger. Um, but I don't know if they would have made us happier or not. But, right. You know, like, so we were a huge band at one point, and we're, we never got to be a stadium band or even an arena band. Like, we're not a, we're not at the level of playing the the gardens all over America. Right. You know, we're doing okay in Unless you announce that you're breaking up, then you'll sell out the garden. I think I'd have to announce that I shot myself. <laughs> <laughs> you need or video in this day and age. On, night every, on stage every night. For one tour every night, Adam Duritz will shoot himself in the mouth and shut up. Um, Gotta see that show. Yeah. yeah, see that. That'll draw a crowd. How do you, how do you measure success? Like with your with your projects, with your albums, with your festival. Well, like right now, I've got three things going on named Underwater Sunshine, none of which have made a penny. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, a record, a podcast, and a uh, uh, a festival, which is a free festival. Um, but I really love all three of those things. That's uh, what matters. So yeah, I don't know. I I mean, I can define success in some ways. It would be nice to be a stadium band, you know, because mm-hmm. if we were a stadium band. My crew stuck with me for pretty much most of our, not just the band, but the crew, you know. They'd all have pensions, you know. We could afford that and we would do whatever we could, you know. Everyone would be taken care of. You know, that's not as easy. And with seven guys in the band, many of which have a breeding habit like you would not believe, (laughs) uh, they have bills more than I have. They have bills, those guys. Some of them... It's just like marry, fuck, breed, divorce, marry, fuck, breed. Breed, divorce, marry, like, fuck, breed. <laughs> they've, they've not mastered the concept of subdivision. You know? uh, but, you know, like that would be great to have a more of a financial success that way because, you know, then we'd all be comfortable for life. We wouldn't have to worry about any of this shit. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it's not. It's, it's harder for them. You know, it's I'm okay, but it's harder for those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I think you got to kind of measure it by – what works for you, you know, because the truth is there's no way to plan for having a hit record. You don't know how to make it happen and you don't know what to do with it once it does happen. Mm-hmm. It's all pretty different, you know. Um, and you're fooling yourself if you think you can. So I'm not sure what else you can do differently. And You know, you think you're just going to do good. I mean, all you did on your first album for us is you did what you wanted to do. It turned out really well right. and everybody liked it. All we did on our second album was do what we wanted to do. It turned out really well. I like it. Right. You know, and not and a lot of people liked it, but not as many as the first one. And that's kind of been the same pattern for every record. I, you know, we did what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I'm really proud of it. It came out great. I love it. Yeah. But not everybody does, you know, and that's there's just no way to plan for that. So why do a bunch of things that someone else tells you they know will be the the you know, the recipe for success? Because they don't know shit. They don't know, they're guessing. Yeah. You'd rather fail with your own shit or get what you get with your own shit than chasing somebody else's dumb plans. Yeah, because all they really know is what worked last time. Yeah. Which wasn't even necessarily their idea. They just saw it happen, and, you know, that's safer for their job. You know, record companies are kind of the bane of all of our existence. Mm-hmm. Besides the podcast, the festival, and, and an album, is there is there something else you're excited for in the future? Um. Say world peace, you asshole. <laughs> <laughs> well, is everything music for you? That seems unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> world peace, of ass. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, I worked on a play for a while with a friend. Uh, my friend Stephen Belber and I were working on a play, and we got invited out to Ojai Playwright Conference, and we did it out there, and it was pretty well received, and then we just been too busy to finish it since then. I'm always leaving on tour or making a record, and he's going off to direct a movie or work on a play. And you know, we were ha- we had dinner the other night. I hadn't seen him in a couple years, and we were both talking about how much we'd like to get back to that because we really liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be nice to do, like something to do later on in life that doesn't involve uh, touring as much. You know, although the truth is, I love touring now. I used to really have trouble being on the road all that time. But now it's it's a little weird to be at home. 
Yeah. Well, well it's just you you spend every night in hotel rooms. You know, it, it's all you don't know anybody. You get pretty isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like you've grown accustomed to that now? Yeah, I do. So when you're home, you feel like, what the hell is this place? Well, I think I've done better on it recently, but you know, for for the wild last four or five years, I think I had more of a struggle at home because it was just less familiar. For the last twenty five years, I've spent most of my time with this group of about let's say 15 to 20 guys mm-hmm. and girls, you know, men and women in my crew and my band. Right. I spent a lot of my life with those people, more of my life than the other portion of it. I probably spent more time with these people than anyone. You know, it's getting to a point where maybe even more than my parents, you know. So mm-hmm. uh, I've grown used to the schedule of it, to the, the knowing where to be and where right. you're supposed to be. It can be a little more amorphous and hard at home. I don't know what the fuck to do with myself sometimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have work to do, but it's got to be all self That's why you have a podcast. Right? Yeah, and that's one thing. It is nice about that because I, I work on it every day. Yeah. You know, I'll spend hours and hours listening to music, researching stuff online, you know, putting together notes, trying to design shows uh, about this or that, some of which I know some about and don't know a lot about. You know, I spend a lot of time working on the podcast. You can really tell how much you love it. I've seen your, your videos on Instagram about the podcast, yeah. and you're, you're much different in your videos, and it shows how comfortable you are than, like, an interview. I had a good one this morning, and my, my girlfriend was still asleep, so I couldn't get her okay on it. But I, <laughs> I, I realized while I was lying in bed that from a certain angle, this is how you could tell I had sort of food poisoning this morning. From a certain <laughs> angle, your elbow looks a lot like someone's ass. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I, I got the phone on my elbow, and I took a whole picture and talked about the podcast that we released today, and... <laughs> It really looked like you were looking at my ass. <laughs> and, and then right at the end, I, I panned down, thumbs up. But uh, how often do you release a podcast? Every week. Okay. Every every Wednesday now. We did a lot. Like the first year we did it, we got we didn't start till about the third or fourth week of January, and we did forty eight podcasts in the first year, which is or forty six, maybe forty six. Yeah. Which is pretty good. I mean, that's like one so goddamn week, right? Yeah, yeah. And I was gone. Yeah. For three and a half months on tour, mm-hmm. so so were you doing it out there on a tour as well? No, we we built up a backlog and we, oh, okay. we miscounted. We thought we had enough to get through all the tour, and we ended up falling too short. So we kind of screwed that up. But did you have to do a best of? <laughs> no, we just didn't release it that week. And everybody went ape shit. I know the fans go. I don't think there's every time we miss a week, it. A, a day late for the podcast. How many episodes are you in? You've been doing like this for five, like six or seven. Yeah, years? we've been doing like five, six years for every day, shit. every week. Fuck, Race yeah. This was 55 today for us. Oh, wow. Was, uh, yeah, that's about me also. I started mine a year ago. We're like 55 also. How long? What's your podcast? How Race Wars. Oh, right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you're like, what, 500 something in? A lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Man, about you a podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How many do you get in a year? Do you get in like... We do once a week, so I usually don't miss... Even if I have to like double up a week or something like that, but yeah, we usually you do. You do twice yeah. a week for Patreon, right? Uh, well, we split that? it in half because we do like a, maybe an hour and a half, two hours each episode. So a lot of yapping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've tried to cut ours down to an hour and a half because my partner who has to do you know, like that, put it together when he gets home, he's like, hey, can we get, just cut, cut out these two hour ones, two and a half hour ones. Just let's get them around 90 minutes. Yeah. He's, my partner is this guy who, uh, James Campion, he, intro- he interviewed me a bunch of times. For, he writes for the Aquarian Weekly that uh, – uh, New Jersey paper, mm-hmm. and uh, he'd interviewed me a bunch of times, and after about four or five years of this, he brought it up one time, hey, you know, there's so much material I don't, I can never use in these articles, we should, like, write a book mm-hmm. together. And I, I thought about it for a couple of years, and I said, okay, and then we got together, and we hung out, like, once a week for about five or six hours for about a year. And at the end of that, I called him and said, hey, there's so much we're never going to be able to use in the book. We should do a podcast. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and so we started a podcast. That's exactly how it happened. But I don't think there's enough people interested yet for it to be a, a big uproar when we – I'm, I'm still I'm still taking pictures of my arm trying to look mm-hmm. like my ass. You should do – have you done any live podcasts? Any what? Live podcasts? Yeah, I did uh, – Who did I do? I did uh, Adam Carolla's uh, last year. Um, I can't remember what else I did. I did a couple, but not a lot. I've got a couple friends who do them. Do you know Brian Callen? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Brian's got one. He said I could come on his. Okay. No, yeah. but have you, you done come on race an audience? Your podcast. Oh, ours? No, yeah. no, no, no. We do, what we do is a lot is uh, when we do have the, the festival and we have 
the acoustic band's recording at my house. We'll do interviews after all those and put them together with some of their acoustic performances mm-hmm. in our interviews. Oh, that's cool. That's the most. But I was kind of worried. I, I didn't know how to interview anyone. So mm-hmm. that was a learning curve for me, just not to be stupid on the air. Because <laughs> it's real easy. The first three or four podcasts we did, there was a lot of stupid. Like, just really boring. And you left it right shit. in? You left it no, in? No, no, I didn't put them out. Okay. <laughs> it took me about three or four weeks of podcasts to Did you listen okay to them one. after? Oh, yeah. And they were total pieces of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute and complete. Just, there's a way you sound where you're like, I think it would be great to sit around and talk about music and geek out or talk about whatever we want to talk about with friends, mm-hmm. you know? But it's not that easy to do that because you get in front of a mic and you start thinking about the fact that you're on a mic. And That's right. Even at this point in my career, it was easy to suck. Mm-hmm. And we did for a while. <laughs> Uh, but then we cleaned it up, you know, and it got better. And, I, there, you know, I wasn't looking for it to be perfect, just not a total stinking piece of shit. Don't get rid of those first three, though. Hold on to them. We got them there. Because you can do it about, you can go back on another podcast and say, look how awful we were on the first three. <laughs> do a throwback, throwback <laughs> And that'll be your biggest podcast. Has yours gotten better over time? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We were just two dudes falling down a flight of stairs. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny. Yeah, it's still got some long history of that in comedy. Be- because, just changing gears for a sec, then, then I, if it's okay, you know, we can take some questions from people that are here. Um, because of your music, music career, um, what do you feel like you've missed out on in other areas of your life, whether a family or well, something I was, else that you haven't been able to do? I missed a lot of stuff. Temple. Yeah, I missed a lot of temple. <laughs> but I was going to miss a lot of temple. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for me with that, you know, I went o- when I was over in Israel the second time, I got really involved in going to see Meshivas over there and, which, which, uh, and studying. Uh, oh, I don't remember. You don't remember. Like 1980, huh? 82, you know. Wow. Uh, and I, I got really interested because Judaism is a little different than other religions. It's not really faith-based. It's more about like you're, you're not supposed to. Paul would say that the biggest thing for a Christian is a blind faith is the, the highest kind of faith for mm-hmm. a Christian because it just shows you just trust in God or Jesus or whatever. But for a Jew, you're supposed to study mm-hmm. and you're supposed to find, you know, rational reasons to support the things, you know. And I got really into that and really interested in it. And then I think Israel's a bad place to do that. I got really freaked out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I started to have this real religious epiphany, but then I kind of flipped on it and I just sort of realized that, you know, my dad believed this and taught me and his dad taught him and his dad taught him. And it's a lot of trust in a line of people that at a certain level, it is kind of just faith in something. And I I wasn't comfortable with that. And also having been brought up reformed and then read it a little more carefully, it didn't actually say, here's a bunch of laws, mitzvot, do whatever you're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And I'm good with that as long as you have a bagel. It actually says, you know, the slightest, the slightest uh, hint of disagreement, I will, I will smite your mm-hmm. ass with lightning. You know, and, and I felt like, well, what have they been telling me all these years about it being okay to just sort of do part of it? And so I went to a couple rabbis I knew over there and asked the question. Some of the people that had, you know, led my uh, trip over two years before were there with other kids now. And, I, you know, I said, I'm having trouble with this because the stuff that you've been telling me is okay – you know, the Old Testament doesn't actually say it's okay. It says it's not okay. Mm-hmm. So how come it's okay? And they all kind of told me, you know, hey, don't stress. Don't worry about this. It's mm-hmm. not It's not that big a deal. You know, we're Jews. And I, I got kind of <laughs> bummed out about that because it, it didn't make any sense to me. And then I, when I got home, I felt really guilty every time I was in temple. I felt like I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And... I got really angry because they're all telling me it's fine. I went to my rabbi when I got home and asked him the same mm-hmm, question, and he mm-hmm. didn't have any, any kind of answer. I just felt like when I was in the temple, I was lying, and uh, it was a real problem for me. It, it's, maybe I wasn't supposed to question that, but I did, and I had a lot of troubles with it for a few years. And then I finally – it was weird. I went to a friend's wedding, and he had, a, he had married a Jewish girl whose family was really – he was not, and he converted for her. Uh, and he cleaned up what had been a particularly messy, if entertaining, life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at his wedding, they asked me to chant an aliyah, and so I did. You know, and I hadn't been in a temple in about four or five years at that point. Um, and I really loved singing it. I really got a lot of feeling when I sang it. And I thought all that weekend, maybe this is time for me to get back involved in this. And then on the Sunday, uh, 
or the Saturday night after the wedding, they're having the Habdallah service, you know, the mm-hmm. extinguishing the end of the Sabbath. And, and I, I loved that song from going to camp, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I sang along with it, and I was feeling really motivated about this whole thing. And then the song ended, except it didn't end. They were still singing. It's just the part that I knew. It's like the Star Spangled Banner. We know the first verse. Right. You know? <laughs> uh, there are all these. Uh, no one could write a one-verse song back then, and so there's all these other verses. Uh, and uh, it went on and, and on and on. And, and pretty soon there's just like these four old men. And it's in this temple in Wilkesbury. It's a weird town at that point. Like clearly it was a vital, thriving Jewish community at one point. And now all of the young people have moved away. This incredible edifice of a synagogue. It's kind of it's incredibly beautiful, but it's kind of run down. You know, this is a culture that's sort of dying out. Right. And everyone, there's like a hundred people there in this room is sitting there, and these four old men are still chanting and singing the other 45 verses. Yes, that nobody else knows. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> They're the four tops of the... Yeah, and all of a sudden I just thought, it's a disrespectful thought, but I just thought, I'm back to this thing where it's a bunch of old men and we're supposed to trust it, and I just don't see it. Oh. And uh, I don't think I'm going to do this anymore. And I didn't. I, I, I didn't set foot in a temple from then until like three years ago. When my mother decided at her advanced age to get a bat mitzvah, oh, and she wow. did it in a group of people, and <laughs> I, and she really wanted me to be there, and I was like, I don't really want to go there again. <laughs> I just really don't, you know. But I went, you know. Do you have like anxiety about just walking in, or no? I just yeah, yeah kind of. I yeah. just felt like it, it caused me a lot of pain when I was younger, and I didn't want to go back to it. It caused me a lot of anger too. I don't want to be frustrated, really. Right. Um, but I went, and I was proud of my mother. And, and how old was she? She was, uh, she's 78 now, so she was probably 76. She probably finally wow. became a woman at 76. I know. <laughs> That's what my dad said. <laughs> I said, well, you were supposed to take care of that in 62. <laughs> and I'm here. Um, so it was weird. You know, at first, I, I, you know, I, I remembered all the songs and the prayers. I, I knew them all. And my dad and my sister were like kind of shocked that I knew the words to everything. And, and then I... My mother, you know, you've been to bar mitzvahs, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, we're modern Orthodox. Right. So we go to synagogue every Saturday. The the real the real joint in a bar mitzvah is the speech mm-hmm. that the kid gives, where he provides pre- proceeds to lecture everyone on. Jude. It's like the the graduation speech at a high school Which graduation. Your uncle wrote that speech. Yeah, it's, the, it's, it's the, like four pages long. Yeah, it's the it's the the rabbi writes it with yeah. the kid. Yeah. It's a terrible speech because the rabbi. A good rabbi isn't necessarily a good speechwriter. Right. But it's always a dumb speech. My mother went first. There was like eight or nine women who did this all together. Oh, okay. And uh, of different ages, all starting about 30 till my mom and a couple other women who were in their 70s. My mom gave the first speech, and it was really interesting. My mom's really smart. She's a good writer. And she gave this really interesting speech about being a woman in, in modern America as opposed to when she was growing up. And she was the, the now meetings used to be at our house in the 70s. Like the the liberation movement was a big deal in our family, and the meetings were at our house. Um, and she was talked about that and and what it meant to her to finally be able to like have her bat mitzvah at this point in her life. Of all the things she'd accomplished over the years, yeah. it was a really interesting speech. And I was like, I turned to my dad and I said, Well, this this bar bat mitzvah thing is completely different when they're adults, because that was a really good speech. That was really interesting. I was pretty impressed. Uh, and the, my dad said, well, yeah, the nice thing is your mom procrastinated like crazy and didn't turn it in until last night, so the rabbi didn't have any time to mess with it at all. So that's actually her speech. <laughs> and I was like, oh, cool, cool. And then the next woman got up, and she said, like, now the Bible teaches us that. And I was like, oh, now we're back to that other shit again. <laughs> yes. You know, and then all the rest of the speeches were written by, like, eight-year-olds or, or the rabbi or whatever it was, right. and they were terrible. And uh, Jews love speeches. Yeah, I know, but they got to get some better writers. It, Jews are great speech writers, but I don't think we're hiring them for Temple. No. 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 Uh, they, they all, all work, go into politics they all work or, or in Hollywood. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hollywood, politics. Is there is there any uh, hint or mention of Judaism in, in any of your songs? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I'd have to look back. There's definitely stuff about religion because I felt very much an apostate at points in my life, which was a painful thing for me, and it was definitely an issue. Jesus has cropped up a few times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not Christian at all, but I mean, it's an example of an attachment to something like that that more people probably relate to. Um, so it has cropped up in my songs. 
Uh, I don't know about the Jewish thing. Well, he is Jewish, so. Yes, he was a nice Jewish kid. <laughs> there really. you go. <laughs> Started his own business. He did. <laughs> and got what we get. <laughs> I think we're going to take some questions. Is that cool? Yeah, yeah. From people that are here. Um, Matt, can we, get, can we get a mic over there? There we go. I'm sorry. Hey, Adam. So we had a close encounter in 97 when you were touring with the Wallflowers, uh, Homedale, New Jersey. And uh, I took my son, Zach, for his first concert. He was like five years old. We got down to the uh, stage. It was like the last song. And uh, you were walking off. And you kind of just looked back and you saw him. And you walked back. And you sat down next to him. And you guys talked for a couple of minutes. Wow. And it was really cool. And, you, and he was just in awe of you. And um, How old was he? He was about five. Oh, man. Yeah. And, uh, I'm good with pets, moms, and kids. <laughs> <laughs> and you said, so you're going to be a rock star? And he said, yes. And now he has a band called the Shady Street Show Band in Asbury Park. They're touring. Oh. And uh, he, I really believe, honestly, that that was kind of like a moment for him. Nice. And uh, he, he always told everybody, yeah, my friend Adam. <laughs> and I just I want to thank you for that because that was just so cool of you to do to take the time because you're probably exhausted after the show and it was just really cool that you did that because you know it's it's fun probably to hear the stories how you touch people and you probably didn't even know it so it was really cool that you did that I uh I get really uncomfortable with people like in the crowd and all the things people want yeah at at shows or anywhere else just because I, I get it. It's the only time in their life. But there are 50 people in line behind them, too. You know what I mean? Right, so right. it can be a weird thing. But kids, you know, you got to take your time for a kid. You know, it's, I, 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 I You're like I, Mean Joe Green. Remember the commercial? Uh, yeah. With the, <laughs> the Thanks, <Coke>. Mean Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Have a Diet Coke, kid. <laughs> <laughs> and some heroin. This will make you a rock star. <laughs> and what's the name of the band you said? What's this band? Oh, Shady Street Show. Shady. Yeah. I really I thought Shady. you said Shitty, Shitty. Street That's Show. That's what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I was like, it's a choice. It's a great name. I'm glad we clarified. <laughs> nice. Hey, Adam. So first of all, I'm from El Paso, Texas. Also, I spent a couple of formative years, and I remember specifically listening to Hanging Around in El Paso, thinking, I need to get out of this town. So that was like the, a bit of the soundtrack of my you know, middle school days. Um, but I had a question just in general about your songwriting style, and a lot of them are seem to be these like kind of narratives and in first person, and I was just curious, are these, are you, you know, do you write them from your own experiences? Like where, you know, like where, do the, where do these stories come from? They're all about how I feel. I'm not necessarily about what I did, but they're all about how I feel. I, I, they used to be a little more autobiographical, it was a real, uh, the combination a few years ago of doing the covers album and singing in the voices of, you know, really experiencing how a lot of other people express themselves and the experience of working on the play, which was the first time in my life I'd ever written for voices other than my own. I've never written for a woman before. Um, those things kind of convinced me that you don't have to write stories in the eye, you know, in the first person that are, you know, and you can still talk about all the things you want to feel. And like, my favorite song I've ever written is Palisades Park, and it's about two kids that aren't me. It has a lot of my life in it. Um, and but it's but a song like Hard Candy with like a trip out to Long Island and all. Yeah, that's that. a true story. That's that about a show yeah. at Jones Beach with yeah. the girl. You know, that's a absolutely. But I mean, e even that the the least interesting part of it is the part that it's the true part that I was there because who cares? I mean, if we. Everybody can just write a diary. Writing a song, that's what's hard. You know, like, it's not so important whether you actually did something, but whatever you say is, is funny. Right. You know, I mean, that's the thing is can you, can you put yourself into it in a way that changes the, the bare fact of it just happening? Because the bare fact of something happening isn't necessarily all that interesting. Most of the time in most of our lives. Occasionally we do things that are, you know, really interesting. But most of the time it's just about living your life. Now, can you look at it in a way and express it in a way that reveals something about you? That's the joint, you know, to me. So that's what I'm always trying to do is just find a way inside a song to say something I want to say. But I, I, don't, I care a lot. I used to feel like I really needed to do that and talk about my life. And now I don't really feel that way anymore. Cool. Thanks. Next By question. the way, I know Amy from that album. Like the Amy, I recognize the song. Like they're not mm -hmm. Amy Noel? Yeah. No, no, from, from, your, from your Underwater Sunshine album. Like there were songs. Amy was on that album. 
Oh, that, yeah, the song by Pure Prairie League? Yeah. You know that person? No, I know the person. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, sorry. Hello, good afternoon. This is really cool that you're here and I'm here. Um, and oh, you're welcome. Here. I come here all the time. What's your perfect day? What, 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 do you, what, what is like the that's ideal day for you? That, that's, that's my question. Great question. <laughs> I, I don't know. Shit. Stumped. I got. I don't know. Yesterday, I did a bunch of work on the podcast that was pretty important. I uh, worked on writing, which I hadn't been doing for a while, and I came up with a piece of an actual, really original piece of music. I think you know, like not just it sounds like other stuff I've done, but a really original piece. That the first thing I've been really excited about in a long time. Like, really excited. I thought it was really completely unique. Uh, my girlfriend and I cooked uh, dinner. I taught her how to cook some stuff. Mansplaining. Yeah. Well, she's not a cook. I am. But, yeah. It's the only time when I don't get hammered with that one. Okay. Um, uh, but, I, you know, I, I'm dissociative. So, a lot of times, life can be at a distance. And that's a – I come to expect that. Um that's not the easiest thing, but I can live with that. But it's nice on a day where you actually, like, uh, don't just sit there, where you do things where, like, I accomplish things that I haven't done before. I get a lot done. Um, of course, I seem to have food poisoning today, so it's <laughs> causing me to, it's causing it to, it colors the cooking a little differently. <laughs> but have you ever tried those, like, shirataki noodles? You know what they are? No. It's like this uh, noodle that's made of from konjac plant, and it. <laughs> that's what you had last night. Well, it's, it's like gross. a pasta that. Yeah, it's, it's really gross at first when you open it up. It smells like fish, but you boil it and it's fine. But it's like it's like a protein fiber thing that has no calories in it. Okay. So it's a way to have pasta and noodles because I've been I've been on a diet lately, um, and I've been really like watching that. So I, we made a bunch of it. We made what we made is a pod cu, you know, a Thai dish. It's like a okay. It's not the easiest thing to make. I made pod cu last night, but I used those noodles to make it, thinking that was a. But then I read about it this morning. It says if you haven't eaten them much, you shouldn't eat a lot of them at first because they're so high fiber. Your body has trouble digesting them at first. They're really, really good for mm -hmm. you, but they might make you feel kind of sick. And I've had basically food poisoning all day. So yeah, that's so, what did it. Yeah, I think it is that's too. Because I, I don't, you know, that shit was all cooked. I don't. Know, it was delicious. Right. How and much of it did you eat? Not a ton, because you know, but. I guess too much. <laughs> so you never know what's enough until you know what's more than enough. <laughs> Any other questions? Scared you off the question thing. Huh? All right, all right, all right. I'll ask one. First of all, thank you so much for being here. Like this is amazing. Thanks for sharing your time. Uh, sorry to go from delicious pads to you to something more serious, <laughs> but um, what you said about religion and your journey with religion really resonated with me. And I am possibly the only other non-Jewish person alongside Sharad. Speak for yourself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but what you said really resonated with me. I was raised Christian and Catholic, and that idea of just we're listening to these old guys and just blindly believing them resonates obviously in Catholicism too. So I find it really interesting that as an adult, you're still kind of questioning with that and you're still on this journey. So how do you reconcile, I guess, your questioning with your culture? What is your goal for you, I guess, spiritually or, or religiously? I don't really have one. Yeah. I'm not sure I believe in any of that stuff. Yeah. I'm not sure there's a reason to believe in it. There's a lot of, especially in Judaism, there's a lot of, things to like about why the mitzvot are there, what they're supposed to teach us. Uh, the morality is not quite as far up its ass as other religions are at times. Uh, <laughs> that said, it, it has a fairly blinkered view of women, um, as all religions do pretty much, um, which gives me a bit of a hint that they're not necessarily divinely written. Mm. You know, because yes. there seems to be a, uh, a tilt, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, I don't really, I, you know, someone once said to me, yeah, I have a problem, I'm good with it all the way up until the invisible people. Yeah. <laughs> like when you, when you have to start believing in invisible people, I'll take Spider-Man any day. The lessons are just as good, Yeah. you know, and I like Peter Parker more. Great you know. power comes with great responsibility. Yeah, you know, it's a pretty good, yeah. it's a pretty good way to live, you know. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of places to get lessons from in life. And we could take a lot of it from a lot of different places and a lot of different people who said wise things. 
trying to decide that one person or one. It's why I never liked philosophy in school because they'd get an idea, however potentially good it might be, and insist that it applied to everything. And I find that problematic. Um, there's a lot of good lessons to learn from a lot of people, and we could probably, I feel like we have the capacity as humans to make those decisions for ourselves, and it's when we abdicate that responsibility that we get into trouble. When we start doing things that are obviously wrong because someone told us they're right and not making decisions for ourselves, I think that's a mistake. Um, and it will lead you to a lot of, uh, or you will excuse the worst shit. Uh, history, at least, has shown that people for a variety of reasons, one of which is religion, have done a lot of terrible, terrible shit in the name of something someone said was right and not figuring it out for themselves. Uh, it doesn't seem like a good way to live to me. But I do like the bagels. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, let's face it, too. Jewish cuisine is not the, the be-all, end-all. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, it's good until you have French or Italian or every other cuisine on earth, uh, you know. I mean, I love bagels, I love chicken noodle soup, and my grandmother made them really well, and I can make one of them. What about a nice borscht? I'm, I've tried borscht. There's a great, uh, like, Ukrainian place or Polish place right around the corner from me, Veselka. Yeah. But, and strangely enough, because they chased us on horseback, their chicken noodle soup is fantastic. <laughs> but the borscht, eh, I don't know. No? I didn't like it as much. Okay. The pierogies, those are pretty yeah. good. Or pierogies, whatever the fuck Pierogi. you pronounce them. Varenki. They chased you on horseback. Yeah, the Jews. That's what the that was like the national sport in Poland, Ukraine, Russia. They they had horses and they you know Cossacks and shit. Okay, Jew baiting is like it's how they they didn't have football then, so they had Jews. Okay, <laughs> that's good to know. Any other last question? Anyone? Anyone? Nobody. The answer was no, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but we, I, we want to thank you for your time. Ah, really appreciate you. you coming up here. Uh, and everyone should listen to your podcast. What day do you release it? We release it uh, Wednesdays. Wednesdays. Today. Okay. What's the name of it? Underwater Sunshine. That's right, Underwater Sunshine. Same as the music festival. That's and right. And the festival is April 5th and 6th, so come down to Bowery Electric. Come hang out with us. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, it's so it kill you to throw a little comedy on that festival? Just a little dash? You know, we actually talked about it this year, about doing that, because I have a lot of friends who are comedians, yeah. you know, and I, I thought it would be really fun to do that. It's a question of how to, like, do it. We need a third stage for it, but I think it's a really good idea. I actually like... Mm -hmm. I'm sort of. I have a lot of friends who do comedy, so I really love comedy. And I grew up, just growing up in San Francisco in the '70s and '80s, was a big comedy city. Oh yeah, you know, uh, bands used to have comedians open for them. It was really, it was what was done, you know, and vice versa. Yeah, it's Patti LaBelle opening for Richard Pryor on that on the movie. You know, mm -hmm. that shit was really cool. Cool. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, guys. Cool. Shroud, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> 